So this morning, um, I am both enjoying God's sense of humor and the fact that he always shows that he is smarter than me. So in no way did I plan to talk about God's fatherly discipline on Father's Day, yet here we are in our scripture text this morning. Uh, And it's a little bit daunting and intimidating, like Jeff said, because the idea, the concept of father uh, is not free of baggage for many people. I've had a chance to spend some time with some students over the past few weeks and uh, from a different church I used to work at and heard a lot about father wounds and things people were bringing with them that were difficult and painful. Um, It's a, a powerful thing to be a parent and it's a daunting thing, but as we will see in our text this morning in Hebrews chapter 12, we will understand that sometimes what we think of a good parent may not entirely be accurate. And so we really need God's word as in all places in life, but especially this morning in the concept of a good father, we need God's word uh, to correct our ideas, to shape um, and to mold them. So we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 3 and going to verse 13. If you have your Bibles, feel free to turn there. If you don't, it's in your bulletin or it'll be on the screen behind you, behind me. So listen this morning to God's word about a good father from Hebrews chapter 12. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves." And chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which we all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. And make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. God, we need you as always to shine the light of your scripture. We see um, so dimly whether we realize it or not. So would you um, make our eyes, our hearts, our minds see clearly your truth this morning, your truth that lasts forever that is useful to teach us, to correct us? Would it be your truth that is communicated this morning and not my opinions or ideas? Lord, teach us. Holy Spirit, we invite you, we ask you to come meddle in our lives for our good because you love us. And we ask this in the name of our Savior Christ. Amen. So most of us that are of age in here have enjoyed the pleasure of having to read assigned high school literature books. And I have spoken to very few people who said, man, I just really liked the book. Maybe Christy, maybe Christy. I really liked the books 
I read in high school. Man, the assigned reading was my favorite part of school. Christy comes by, honestly, her mom is an English teacher. It happens. But for most of us, it's like, oh, summer reading. But there was one book I read in high school that that just kind of stuck with me. It unsettled me a little bit. And it tells the story. It's a novel, the fictional story of the true person that existed, Barabbas. As you may remember, Barabbas was an insurrectionist or a murderer. He was a criminal that was facing Roman execution at the same time Jesus was. And Pilate, in an attempt to release Jesus, kind of said, well, let me give you Jesus because it's the tradition. They said, no, give us Barabbas, kill that Jesus guy. So Barabbas, who had rightfully earned his death, is set free. And the novel picks up with Barabbas watching not comprehending this Jesus man who has submitted to death on the cross that has done nothing wrong, and it just unsettles him. He knows what he deserved, but he can't figure out what is going on with this Jesus. What is going on with these Christians? And the novel follows his whole life of just trying to figure it out and never quite getting there. At one point, he's even enslaved in a copper mine next to another Christian who who believes deeply And at one point, the Christian is called to account. And the Christian says, absolutely, I believe in him. And he's martyred. He's killed from it. Barabbas says, no, I'm not sure about that guy. It seemed like a good idea at the time. But he, he keeps trying to figure out Christianity and never quite getting it until one night. There's one night when he goes out to look for a gathering of Christians he's heard about. But the Christians, knowing that there was some trouble brewing in Rome, had, had canceled So Barabbas goes out looking for them and he finds people, a mob essentially setting fire to different parts of the city in Rome. It was a great big setup. It was an excuse to persecute the Christians. None of them were involved, but this mob was going out and setting fire to things. Barabbas, not knowing this, thinks, finally, finally the Christians are doing something I can get behind. I want to follow that. So he joins in the mob. He grabs his torch and he starts lighting buildings on fire. He is arrested. He is imprisoned and he is sentenced to death. And in prison, he is next to the innocent Christians who are all rounded up to be persecuted for this crime that they did not commit, but he jumped into willingly. And he realizes vaguely that he just, he missed it. And the story of Barabbas is the story of somebody who just doesn't get it, who has totally misinterpreted the events and completely seen them as the, the opposite of what they actually were. I don't exactly recommend reading it. It's a sober book and doesn't really end with a lot of hope. But it shows the consequences that when we entirely miss something and we get it backwards. That's really what happens a lot with us when we experience pain, suffering, and struggle. We tend to interpret difficulty in our lives as evidence that God either does not love us is not strong or is distant and far away. When things are bad, we think, well, he can't be good. Why would he let this happen to me? When we, and it has consequences. When we fail to see God's activity in our life through pain as love and care, we get worn out by the struggle. We get discouraged. We get disheartened and we get weary. Haven't you felt that? 
when life just seems like it's turning the screws on you because of conflict in your family or conflict in your jobs or dreams that have died and the pressures just keep mounting and you're like, God, do you, do you just not like me? Did I do something to make you angry? Where are you at? And we think certainly God cannot be near or involved in this because it simply hurts too much. And what the scripture we're going to look at today offers is a radical reorientation of how we understand our struggle, because so often we get it wrong. So we're going to see three things from the text today. This is your roadmap. It's not a big surprise, but here's where we're going. We're going to see that actually struggle and pain are often a sign of God's activity in our lives. It is often a sign of his love for us. We're going to see that they actually are for a purpose. They're not meaningless. And finally, we're going to look at, well, how do we respond if those things are true? Let me offer a few quick qualifications. As you may have noticed, there's father, son, father, son, father, son language. All the women, you guys can go ahead and leave because this isn't about you. No, the the plural, when when Greek uses the plural, it's usually in the masculine form. So it's talking about children. So when you see sons, read children. That's all of us that are God's children. And the second thing is we're going to be talking about discipline a lot. So it's always really good to define your terms. Another thing I learned in English class, I did actually listen occasionally. But when we talk about discipline, uh, often we think of it as just as punishment. And that's not an entirely accurate picture. It's correcting, it's training, it's shaping and molding for good. And we're going to see that it it takes the form of several unlikely things. And the first way we see discipline in this passage is that actually like the consequences of our sin can be disciplined, like our struggle with sin. Because it it says right in the the very beginning of our passage, in your struggle with sin, you've not yet resisted the point of shedding your blood. So God's discipline often looks like that struggle with sin. But it's not just bound to that because we also see in the passage we're considering Jesus' example as one who endured from sinners hostility against himself. This is the whole narrative of what's happening in Hebrews. They are facing a lot of persecution and pressure from sinful people, from people that are martyring them, that are calling them into courts to give an account for what they believe. So what we see is God's discipline can take the form of our wrestling with sin, but it can also take the form of persecution from sinful people. And then the final thing we see is God's disciplining action is struggle and suffering in a world that is broken by sin. So when I talk about discipline, I kind of have this whole orbed concept. So I might talk more about struggle and suffering and pain, but that includes all those things. It includes struggling because of our own sin. It includes struggling against sinful people. And it includes the brokenness of this world that often wounds us deeply. All right, preamble aside, the first thing we're going to look at this morning is that discipline is actually a sign of love. This is very counterintuitive and radical to us because none of us think, oh, I'm feeling pain right now. Somebody must be loving me. If you think that, we have some great counselors on staff and we probably should talk about that. But it's a radical shift. It would be as if I gave you the wonderful news, hey, All of the doctors have put their heads together, and guess what? They figured out that the best diet, the way to be the most healthy, is actually to have bacon, beer, and ice cream. 
It is everything a growing body needs. And some of us would say, praise Jesus, let's go home. Christ has finally returned and here's the proof. But it would be such a radical shift of what we're used to. Or if someone were to tell you, by the way, exercise is actually really, really bad for you. Stop doing it. Some in the audience are like, I told you, I told you that was true. But it is a radical shift because that is not how we feel. That is not our natural response to pain and suffering. Because what we often think is that comfort equals care. And really this morning, we need a radical redefinition of God's fatherly love. Because we tend to think if God really likes us, everything in our life will be going well. That's the proof. Brothers and sisters, what we find in our passage this morning is that God loves you too much for that to actually be true. But it's a common thought because it exposes a lie that is extremely prevalent in Christian teaching. And that lie is, if you have enough faith and you push the right spiritual buttons, God will bless you with health, he will bless you with wealth, he will bless you with peace, and all your dreams come true if you just believe and maybe donate some money on the side to the right cause that's telling you that that's what you should actually do. That is a radical lie. It would be like me saying, I love my son Knox so much that I am giving him ice cream at every meal. Because I love him and I want to be happy. He likes ice cream. Why wouldn't I do that? I'm a good dad. You would say, no, you are a negligent negligent dad. And that's a nice little thing we like to call diabetes. That wouldn't be loving him, would it? Simply just giving him what would make him comfortable and simply what would make him happy in a moment. God loves us far, far more than that. And the truth this morning is that he loves you enough to allow the refining fires of struggle and suffering to burn in your lives. He loves you enough to let you feel the painful, often heart-wrenching consequences of your own sin for your good so that you may live. God loves you too much to just care about your temporary comfort. And another myth that I think is worth dispelling is that if you're suffering, you must have done something wrong. Well, I mean, look at what's going on in your life. I mean, you didn't have your quiet times as long as I did. So clearly that's why God is blessing me. No, that is not biblical. That is not true. But we often treat God like he's a little bit more karmic. You know, like I do good things. I get good things. Just because someone is enduring suffering does not mean that there is sin in their life. It can mean that. God sometimes sends pain and suffering as a result of our sins or to draw our attention to our sins. But if we have an entire book of the Bible called Job that shows us someone suffering without having caused sin, we need to be careful when we look at our own hearts and others and accuse suffering as a result of sin. We need to look at our hearts But it's not a one-to-one correlation. If you suffer, you're sinning. The same way it's not true as if you're comfortable, God loves you. Both are opposite distortions of truth. One of the harder things this morning, one of the harder challenges of this passage is if we are not experiencing God's fatherly discipline, if we are not experiencing his pruning in our life through struggle um, or through correction, 
it may mean that we are illegitimate children because a loving father does not leave his kids alone. A loving father does not say, good luck, go get them. I'm out now. A loving father is tenderly caring for his and worrying about and being concerned over his kids always. It is no less true of our heavenly father. It is more true. So he's actually saying, the author of Hebrews, take comfort. If things are hard, God is at work in your heart, and that is a good thing. And if you are living a carefree, comfortable life without any issues, you may be in an experience of blessing, or it may be that you are not following the Lord. And either way, it's worth asking our heart. We ought not seek out suffering as an end of itself, but we cannot fear it because God is at work in it. God definitely does not promise us comfort, but he does promise us himself. And he does promise that he loves us enough to meddle and be at work in our lives. And that is how good a father we have, that he takes every tool at his disposal to love and shape us. Every tool, including suffering, including pain, and even the consequences of our own sin at times. We have a good father who loves us well, but often is a different definition than we would have of love. It is a deeper, truer, more permanent love that he offers. Well, why does it matter? It matters because how you view God in your suffering directly correlates to how you respond to him, right? If you are suffering and you think God's like, like the kid, you know, burning an ant pile with his magnifying glass and just kind of taking joy in your pain, You are unlikely to turn to him in your pain. This is not a shocking revelation. But if you realize that in your pain and your suffering, God is active, he is at work, he is still true to his promises, then you can turn to him and say, God, where are you in this? God, it hurts. What are you doing? So how we view God's activity in our struggle really matters. And we need a redefinition that God's discipline is actually a profound, deep act of love. So what is he doing? What's God's discipline doing? What is its point? And the second thing we're going to see this morning is that God disciplines us to make us holy. He disciplines us to make us like him. Now, if you are a parent, you know that it is almost a universal fact that you know better than your children what is good for them. If you are a child you know it is an almost universal fact that you do not believe that that is actually true. That is just how it is. Most parents know, oh yeah, that stove will actually burn you. And most small children are like, shiny. It is no less true with our Heavenly Father that He knows what we need and He disciplines us for our good because He knows what is good for us. And we see in verse 10 that it is not wasted, but it is actually for our holiness. What God is doing is he is making us more like we were created to be. He is making us more like himself. If we were made in the image of God and that has been distorted by sin, if God is making us holy, he is making us like we were created to be. He is making us look more like Jesus. And that's always been his promise throughout the book of Hebrews. We saw last week that he is the author and perfecter 
of our faith. And often in times of struggle, he is perfecting us for our good. And it's not surprising, is it? That we grow through times of struggle and pain. If any of you have had the displeasure of training for like a 5K or something like that, and I I use the word displeasure appropriately, unless you're Greg Holtzauer, most of us don't like running. John can meet you. There's a couple. Somehow they're all officers. That worries me now that I say it out loud. But if you've trained for something, you know that to get faster, you have to actually be uncomfortable, right? If you actually want to grow athletically, struggle is required. I will not become a faster 5K runner by taking daily leisurely strolls through my garden. If I had a garden, I have a lot of weeds. That's not actually how we grow. And most of us that have been Christians for any amount of time know that through God's weird economy, the times when we have felt his comfort and presence most deeply, the times when we have a clear picture that God loves me and he is at work are often the times when we have struggled most deeply. It's simply true. I would like to grow in times of comfort and ease. God tends to grow me through times of wrestling and struggle just because he's good. And he does not waste those things, but accomplishes his purpose in them. And that has always been the promise of scripture. And it is encouraging to us because it it reminds us that our struggle, that our suffering is not pointless. Doesn't it so often feel that way? Why? What good is this doing? Why am I in pain? Why did I have to lose that? Why? But here's the promise of scripture from 2 Corinthians. And these are some of the verses I find most encouraging in times of struggle. 2 Corinthians 4, starting in 17, says that this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. An eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. If God were only to care about our temporal and immediate comfort, he would be a terrible father. Would that we see our father loves us enough, loves us far deeper than that, to actually shepherd us through suffering. And the good news of that passage is your suffering is not meaningless, it is not wasted, but it is actively currently shaping and forming your heart to be more like Christ. It is doing something that is preparing you to enjoy God forever in eternity. It is not wasted with one qualification. If you are not a child of God, if you do not call Jesus your Lord and Savior, your suffering is pointless. It isn't doing anything. It is wasted. This is when a lot of you guys are like, Dave, again, great pep talk. Thank you. But if you don't know Christ, your pain and suffering is accomplishing nothing if it does not drive you to the one who offers you life and healing. That is your greatest need, not alleviation of your troubles, but someone who has loved you and gone to death to bring you life. And if that's not true of you, if you're not sure about that, please, you desperately need to talk to one of the pastors or elders or staff here. We would love that conversation. 
but the struggle, the suffering God uses for his purpose. And I saw a brilliant picture of that at General Assembly last week, which is our denominational gathering where we all get in a room and argue about rules of polity. That was not the demonstration of God working through suffering, though it could have been because I felt like suffering it several times. But I went to a, a luncheon that was put on by Mission to the World, MTW, our sending agency that sends missionaries out overseas for the PCA. And I heard a church planter missionary from Germany sharing. And he told, he told us about a church right down the road from him that uh, several years ago had about 10 people. Old German church had about 10 people. None of them were spring chickens. And the conversations they were having is when and how do we shut down this church? And then the refugee crisis happened. And as many of you know, Germany has taken in a lot of refugees. So this church had one refugee family show up. And they said, well, great, come on in. Now we have 15 people, not 10. And then they had another. And I believe he said within the span of two or three years, they had 900 people in their church. And he continued to tell us stories of an Iranian, an Iraqi, a Syrian refugee that had come to the States, had entered this refugee thing, had had their entire life uprooted and destroyed. So they had to flee to Germany where they didn't know people, they didn't know the language, and then found Christ. More accurately, Christ found them. And he said these, these people are sharing at their baptism, God took me to Germany so that he could give me Jesus. What a picture of God using suffering and pain and that he took something as devastating as civil war of losing their family, their friends, their house, their possessions because he loved them enough to give them himself. And he drove them to Christ because he cared more about their eternal hearts than their temporary comfort. That is always the way our God works because he's that good. But it begs an uncomfortable question. What is your goal for your life? Does it square up with God's goal for you? What is your greatest hope and desire? Is it that by any means necessary, you would know more and more of the love of Christ and be shaped more and more into his image? Or that you would be comfortable, safe, Secure. I don't like these questions. They make me uncomfortable because what I often find is that sometimes I pick comfort. And the painful but loving truth God reveals this morning is if comfort and control are your goal, you will always be resisting the refining fires of God's loving discipline. If comfort and control are your goal, you will never see your pain correctly. You will never see God in your pain correctly. You will never see a loving father, but somebody who is meddling and messing up your plans. God wants more for you. He has made you for more than comfort and ease. Well, let me be honest. I'm in a season of life where God is loving me more than I would care for him to. Can I say it that way? where God is exposing parts of my heart, of my pride, 
of the things that I'm putting my trust in to make life okay more than him. And he just keeps bringing it out and bringing it out. And then sometimes it doesn't feel real good. The passage actually says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Yes, that is actually true. And there are times when I say, God, how about just comfort and peace? Can I get on that plan? But there are moments of clarity where I realize that God is graciously and powerfully tending my heart. And he is rooting out cancerous things that would kill me so that he can replace it with his love and himself. Thank God that he loves me better than I often want or ask. God is at work in our pain from sin, from sinful people, from the world. He's making us more like Jesus. He's making us holy. So how do we respond? What do we do when these things are exposed, when God is disciplining us with his love? We have to embrace and take comfort in the Lord's discipline. And we see that in the very end of our passage. In verse 12, there's a command. It says, therefore, which whenever you see therefore, it's because of the things that came before. Therefore, because God is treating you as a child that he loves, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Now, often when we feel suffering and pain, this is, this is kind of what our posture starts looking like right? This is, this is weak knees. This is drooping hands. We go through life just thinking, man, I am, <sighs> this is too much. It's too painful. It's too hard. I don't even know. God gets it. But what he's reminding us this morning is if we know, if we know that God is actively involved in bringing about our good, even in the deepest pain, it allows us to stand up. It allows us to stand up a little bit and realize that this suffering is not the truest things in our life. It may be devastatingly painful. God doesn't minimize that, but it is not the end of the story. It is not wasted, but God is actively involved in it. So practically, what do you do? One, turn to your loving God with your pain and your sorrow. This is what he calls and commands you to do. He expects, he says, pour out your heart to the Lord. So when you are suffering, the good news is because God is involved in it, turn to him. He knows what's going on. Be honest about your struggle and your comfort and your pain. Ask him what he's doing in it. God, what are you teaching me? What are you trying to show me? But also take comfort that you may not get an answer. Job never got an answer. He got God. God didn't promise answers to him. He doesn't promise answers to us, but he does promise us himself, which is a far better thing. It may also be an invitation for us to reset our hopes of what we most deeply desire in life. If it is comfort over Christ, we have missed it and we are settling. We are settling for an inferior. It may also be an invitation to repent. Pain and suffering and struggle that comes about from our own sin is a call to repent. That's what the next verse, verse 13, is talking about. It's saying, turn to straight paths so what's lame may not be pulled out of joint. Basically, what's hurting may not be made worse. So if your ankle is sprained and then you go out and run, 
five miles, you're probably going to tear ligaments and you're probably going to hurt this hip and this knee and maybe this right ear because you like compensate when you run. Please don't run like this. But the idea is if God is exposing pain in your heart because there's something that you need to turn away from or repent, repent so that it doesn't grow worse, so that you don't injure yourself even deeper. It may be a call to repentance. Some of you have had a really hard time hearing this message this morning. We can own that. Some of you have experienced unimaginable pain. You have gone through things that have seemed like they will destroy you. Perhaps your own addiction, the addiction of someone you love. Perhaps deep depression where you don't know if you're going to get out of bed the next day. Anxiety where you feel like destruction is coming at every turn so you never feel safe and you never feel at peace. As we've experienced this week, the death of a loved one, one taken far too soon, things that seem to stab through your very heart. Unmet longings, good longings, longings God has put in your heart of marriage or of children or of a home or of good parents, a family. I know enough of your stories to know there is deep pain in this room. And for some of you, this is just probably hard to hear and believe. It is always a struggle for Christians to know how God works in pain. So let me just offer a few thoughts about God and pain this morning. God does not expect your pain to magically stop hurting. Nor does he ask you to mask it or pretend and hide, which is something we are very good at doing on Sunday mornings. That is not what God calls us to. He also never calls us to take what is evil or bad and to call it good. He never does that. Losing a loved one, experiencing deep pain or trauma, abuse, those are not good things. And God does not ask us to put a bow on it and say, it's all good. God loves you. It's fine. And please don't ever say those words to someone else. If God cared enough about our pain to die on a cross so that it would not defeat us, he does not minimize your suffering. And just because he is at work in it, doing things, does not mean it is not painful and something that one day will be eradicated when he returns. He is not the author of evil and suffering, but because he is so powerful and so good and so in control, he turns it to accomplishes his very own purposes in your heart and mind. That is a good father that loves us enough, but is powerful enough to take those things and use them in our lives. And God's discipline is never, ever vindictive. And some of us have experienced vindictive discipline or capricious or wanton discipline, but God never disciplines us punitively. There's no punishment for you. Jesus took the punishment. That's settled. God's discipline for you is out of loving care and nurturing, even in our pain. He is not indifferent or detached to your pain and suffering. God disciplines everyone he treats as a son. What happened to Jesus? God's son. His discipline took him to death on the cross 
so that you and I may have peace with the Father. It is no surprise then that we would go through discipline as God refines us if that's how his own son was treated. The beginning of the passage says that Christ, essentially it's alluding to, we have not resisted sin to the point of shedding our blood. Well, Jesus did. To the point of shedding blood on the cross, which is how you and I could ever be called sons and daughters of God. It's because Christ accomplished that on the cross through his obedience to his father. So even as we wrestle with this truth this morning, that God is at work in it, you may not feel like I can believe this or I can hold on to it or my pain is too much. Just like we talked about last week, the good news this morning is what you depend on is not your own strength. What you depend on is that Christ is enough and has done enough that there is nothing that you will face in your pain and your suffering in this life that is stronger than Christ's ability to turn and to redeem and to heal. That even though you may suffer your whole life through, nothing, not even the deepest suffering, can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ. Because Jesus endured suffering to the point of shedding his own blood, You are not illegitimate children. You belong to God. You are his. He loves you enough that he may shepherd you through hard things to care for you and to form himself in your heart. But the good news is that we take comfort in that because even as we struggle, our father is loving us well. That your father, even in your struggle now, is intimately at work in loving you and faithfully working good in your life. He is pruning and gardening the soil of your heart so that flowers and life may burst forth for all eternity. You are dearly loved because of Jesus, even in your suffering and your pain. And the good news this morning is that though we may shed tears until the day we see Jesus face to face because of the cross of Christ we know it is not wasted that it is doing something and that one day God himself will wipe away every tear we have ever shed in this world he is a good father he is in control and he is at work in your lives even in your deepest pain On this Father's Day, would we remember that we have the best Father, a Father who loves us so deeply. Join me in prayer to our good Father. God, I confess that this takes some reorienting for me to believe, that I don't associate struggle with love. But I praise you that you are so good that you use everything to lovingly father and train me up. That you are making me look like you. You are making fruit grow in my heart that I so desperately need. You are stripping away things that would kill me. Would you teach us how to see your face, even in our pain, to see your compassionate, fatherly, gentle care, even as we struggle? And would our hope only be put in the fact that Christ has done what it took to make us your children. 
And you will never leave us nor forsake us. And you will never turn your back on those that you love. Give us faith to believe this, we ask in the name of Christ. Amen.